You're listening to Mitnick's Monthly Brushstrokes, a podcast on the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart. I'm Keith Mitnick, author of Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Foil Their Plans to Spoil Your Case. For more information, please visit keithmitnick.com. This is Keith Mitnick, and today I want to talk to you about slip and fall cases and a strategy that can readjust the juror's focus into a realistic perspective so that your client can have a fair trial. We all know that jurors often come to trials on slip and falls thinking if you fall down, it's your own fault and you ought to be looking where you're going. And it's a real hurdle. And there are two aspects of that that I want to cover with you. One of them is a jury selection question, and the other is a adjustment of the juror's perspective once you get into the case that can be done in closing argument. And let's start with the jury selection part of it. I'm not going to spend the time here today going through the setup question where you give the jurors an analogy so they understand how subtle bias can have a powerful impact. That's in my book, Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Foil Their Plans to Spoil Your Case. It's also in my audio tape, Winning at the Beginning, both on trial guides. Uh, There's also even another podcast that covers some of that subject. But I want to go to the question itself that will identify people who are really prone to that knee-jerk reaction that you fall down, it's your own fault, and those people really shouldn't be deciding your case because you've got a heck of an uphill battle with them and maybe lose before you even start. And here's the Vordire question. How many of you feel if someone slips and falls, then they must be at least partially at fault no matter what the rest of the evidence shows? Now, what that does is and you'll see in my book and in other places where we talk about this, often those type of case-specific bias questions, as opposed to general bias. General bias, I don't like pain and suffering. I don't like personal injury. don't like medical malpractice. Then you get into more specific things like a slip and fall or a motorcycle case. Those often end with, in spite of what the evidence shows, or regardless of what the evidence shows, because the point is, We can marshal all the evidence we want, and you've pretty much already made up your mind. That's what that adds to the question by tacking on the end, regardless of what the evidence shows. So going back to this question, how many of you feel if someone slips and falls? They must be at least partially at fault for their own injuries, no matter what the rest of the evidence shows. So now if you're in a comparative fault state, your client's starting out with a yes on where you comparative fault before you can get to the evidence. And that person shouldn't be deciding the case. They've already made up their mind. And then after they've said that, I follow up. I'd say, how many of you feel that if somebody uh, slips and falls or trips and falls, they must be at least partially at fault for their own injuries, no matter what the rest of the evidence says? Someone says, yeah, I do. And it would it be fair to say that in spite of your best effort to try to push those feelings aside, that's your honest best answer, that, that that's really just the truth of the matter. That's the way you'd start out in this case feeling. Yep. And we'd be hard-pressed to convince you otherwise that they had no fault. You sure would, Mr. Mitnick. I say, thank you, sir. I appreciate your candor. That's what makes the system work. How many of the rest do you feel like Mr. Jones? And I go get them. So that's the Void Dyer question to call out those people who already are, are against you. Then I want to take you to a way to deal with the typical slip and fall, for example, in a grocery store. 
and give you a, a, a readjustment of perspective for the jury that's powerful. And it goes like this, if you're in closing argument. Or you just start it with your client. Ma'am, how old were you when you learned to walk? Uh-huh, I was too young to know. Well, how old were your kids when they learned to walk? Uh, one and a half, one, whatever it is. You think you started about then? Did you ever hear that you were a slow starter? No? Okay. You think by the time you were, let's say, five years old, you got pretty good at this walking thing? Kind of had it down? Yeah, yeah, as best I can remember. Well, let's move forward. By the time you were a teenager and in high school, were you pretty good at the walking thing? How you'd walked a bunch by then? Oh, yeah, I walked all the time. You pretty good at it? Yeah, I, I, I was pretty good walking. How about over the next 25 years? Let's move you on up to, you know, you're, we'll add 25 to 15 and you're 40 years old. Did you get a lot more experience at this thing we call walking in those 25 years after your high school? Oh, goodness, I walk all the time. Let me ask you, how many times why, after you got really good at the walking, real experience, how many times did you just spontaneously forget how to walk and fall down? None. You never just spontaneously forgot how to walk and fall down. No, any time I ever fell, it was because I, you know, something got in the way or I slipped on something. I didn't just forget how to walk. You see where it's going. You're suddenly making it clear that it's nonsense your client walks to that grocery store and just spontaneously forgot how to walk and fell down. Now, close an argument. Yeah, you go back through a little of it. Or if you haven't done it with your client, you can just do it. You don't need the evidence from your client. I mean, for goodness sake, are they going to object that's not an evidence your client's been walking for 40 years? You can just say somebody been walking for 40 years and all that time and start young and you, you want to build it up a little bit, ham it a little bit, because you're trying to show the absurdity of the position. And they would have you believe that my client just spontaneously forgot how to walk and fell down and it had nothing to do with the fact there was water on the ground or grapes or whatever it was. Or there was nothing there. She just making up the fact that she felt the water on the floor. And keep in mind, folks, this is the second perspective. That shows the absurdity. Here's the other. You ought to be looking where you're walking. This old Moe Levine. I mean, this isn't original. That last one's original. This one isn't, but it's worth repeating. You go in a grocery store and they say, look up here. Look up here. This is where all the prices are. This is where the deals are. Here's where your cereal is, and you turn it around to see the nutritional value on it. They aren't putting the things they're selling to you on the floor. They're up, even on the bottom shelf. You're not looking in front of you. You're walking the aisles, looking to the side, looking up, because they want you to look up, because that's where the products they have that are for sale they want you to buy, because that's how they make money. But they want to say, you ought to be walking down that aisle, staring in front of your feet, and let's just make a lap through each aisle and leave and not buy anything or look up. Well, that's not fair. That's not even reasonable. So they know you're looking up, which heightens their responsibility when they invite you in there as a customer to make money off of and ask you to please look up. They have a responsibility to make sure there isn't something down where they don't want you looking that you could fall on and slip on. So it's their responsibility that was on the floor. They let it get that way. And now their answer is to say, not our problem. Well, that's nonsense. Or it had nothing to do with that. You just spontaneously forgot how to walk and fell down. Now, please bring back a verdict that speaks common sense, fairness, and do the right thing here. You see how that turns it around.
you've gotten rid of the people who are predisposed to you fall down at your own dang fault. You got hopefully open-minded people. And then once again, you will hear me talk over and over about the whys. How do you figure it out? I did the thing about spontaneously falling down at a seminar. And I had a lawyer in the audience ask the question, man, where do you get those ideas from? And I said, by asking why. Why are we right and why are they wrong? That exercise bears fruit almost every time. And I was trying a slip and fall case. And there was water that my client said they fell on and it was on her pants afterwards. And the defense was, you're making it up. There's no water. Of course, they didn't say you're making it up. They just said there's no water. They tried to sugarcoat it. And I got thinking about it. Do I believe my client's right? Yes. Do I believe they're wrong? Yes. Why? What's wrong with this? Because they're saying if there was no water, my client just suddenly fell down for no reason. And I thought, that's insane. And from that, I started putting meat on the bone. And I started with, how long you been walking? (laughs) You're an experienced walker. You're good at this. And the likelihood is you didn't just forget how to walk and spontaneously spelled down. Now, the last part of it, once I got the why, I started the second thing you hear me talk about so much, which is putting the right words to it. By saying spontaneously forgot how to walk exposes the nonsensical side of the defense. But it all started with the whys. And if you use those things on a slip and fall, your odds of going up and getting justice for your client went up significantly once again, by thinking the problem, asking the wise, putting the right words to them, and not letting them pull off injustice on your watch. For more information, please visit keithmitnick.com.